The cream rises to the top. If you build it, they will come. Content is king, and so on. We've heard all the cliches, but the problem is they are totally wrong. Even the best idea, product or project will fall flat if it isn't communicated effectively. On the Figures or Speech podcasts, hosts Tammy Palazzo and Tim Wickstrom talk to a wide range of amazingly successful executives, business owners, and leaders about how learning to communicate changed their lives and their fortunes. Every episode gives us stories we can emulate and lessons we can follow. Welcome to Figures of Speech. I'm Tammy Palazzo, and I'm here today with my co-host, Tim Wickstrom, and we are so excited. Our guest today is Blair Dalton Bloomston, and she's one of the founding members of Game On Nation. Game On Nation is this awesome company. They're a communication, leadership, team building, and business consultancy. They have worked with major corporations. They've worked with college athletes, professional athletes, different teams. Blair has spent the last 14 years helping some of the world's most recognizable executives and athletes and teams military service members. She's worked with them to improve their self-awareness and their communication skills through Game On's entertaining, improv-based curriculum. She's been on lots of media. She's been featured on ESPN, BBC, ABC7 News, and she really is one of the industry's leading experts on communication and self-confidence training and how fortunate we are to have her here with us today. I am so excited, Blair, to have you with us today. We go back a long way, and I'm excited for you to be part of our podcast and to have the opportunity to talk with you and dig in a little bit about your background and also to catch up because we haven't spoken in a while, so I'm really excited to hear what's going on with you and to let our listeners get some insight into what you do. I think the interesting thing about our sort of collaboration is that we are kind of solving the same problem in two Mm -hmm. very different ways, but we're still kind of tackling the same issue. So to get us started, Blair, tell us a little bit about your background and your business and let everybody know what it is that you do. You got it. So my name is Blair Bloomston. I am a partner and the vice president of business development uh, for Game On Nation. And we are a leadership, communication, and team-building training firm at our core. But realistically, we're so much more than that. And how do you even say that without then also following with, but we're humble. We're humble. <laughs> uh, so I kind of want to acknowledge that. <laughs> I know. So I've been doing this for 15 years. My business partner, Steve Schenbaum, founded the company in Los Angeles back in 97. And, you know, what makes us really unique in the training industry, let's, let's call it that industry, is that we use game theory and we use gamification. We apply that to learning. And so you can take any concept uh, that has to deal with how we speak, how we communicate, how people interact together and apply some game dynamics and some different kind of behavioral psychology principles to it. Two things happen. One, it becomes really fun. And people lean in and care because they're having a great time. And secondarily, because you've created an experience and there are moments within that experience, they remember what happened in the room. And so that's allowed us to work with professional athletes and teams. I know you'll probably talk about those in my intro and in the show notes uh, because they're pretty high profile. 
and we've moved pretty rapidly from the pro leagues uh, into very high-level corporate, C-suite, executive level, vested partner level. And then most recently, we've had the chance to enter the military space and work with different military leaders. And we recently did a little bit of work up on Capitol Hill. Super cool. Super cool. So I had a really great opportunity probably like six or seven years ago to come down to Florida and sit in on one of your sessions during the NFL Combine, which hands down has given <laughs> so many bonus points with my family. Because as you know, I have a house full of men, all football. Well, not all. My younger son is not such a big sports fan, but my husband and my older son are serious football fans. And when I came home from that, my older son was much younger at the time, but still thought I was super cool. It was such an amazing experience to see these big burly college football players get up and improvise like how cool is that that you take these guys who you know typically you would never see in an experience like that they are trained athletes they are so focused on you know being awesome out on the field and now you're teaching them how to sit behind a desk and do a press conference and be able to think on their feet like I think what you do is so cool. That will stay with me for the rest of my life. Like, really, I've, I've told that story so many times, professionally and personally. It's definitely one of the hallmarks of my professional experience doing that. But tell us more about that, because I know there's a lot of different areas that you're in, but I think it's really, really interesting how mm-hmm. you really got a lot of your footing as a business working with professional athletes and why. Like, why was that so important for you guys? Well, from a human level, it's really great for me because I am not a super talented athlete. I was the captain of the bench warmers on my volleyball team in high school. <laughs> but what I did bring <laughs> so <Same>. real. <laughs> what I did bring was the ability to connect with people and make friends. And you know, I think it goes back to eye contact, willingness to smile body language and presence. So when you have a situation like pre-draft, right, this is the biggest job interview of these young men's lives that they're going into. And it's not just about how fast they run the 40 or, you know, their prowess on the field. It's also about how they present themselves. And so we use improvisation as one technique. We also use different exercise-based learning. But the key is you can't just talk about these skills. You have to get up on your feet and exercise them out and work on them. And really the key for us as coaches, we like to think of ourselves almost as a guide because it's my job to get the peer to peer feedback happening in the room. You know, it's one thing for Russell Wilson to speak up and say like, this is my story, this is who I am. And for me as a coach to say, well done. Okay, you told that distinctly, you got to the point. It's another thing for Kirk Cousins in the same room to say, hey, that was awesome. And that's my story too. So again, I'm always about like, what can I do to get them leaned in and care? And then how can I get them to remember? And so that peer element is really always present. I have so many different places I want to go with this because I love it so much. <laughs> I, so I, I've got to control myself here because I've got a ton of questions. Sure First too. of all, I want, to, I want to make a comment on what you just said, but because I think as coaches, you're so spot on our, I think if we look at our real purpose, it's 
multi-level. It's one to help them understand how they can do it differently, that what you see and what you do now is completely controllable and to teach them how to Mm -hmm. do it differently. But I think the real value comes in when you start to build that competency across a group of people. So to your point, when you start to shift the balance of coaching from us to maybe others that are in the room or in the audience that now you've given them a language to work with and a form of measurement, that feedback, it takes it to a whole new level. And it's also validating for what we do. You know, oftentimes for me in the beginning, when we're coaching somebody, if I said, you said um 13 times, no, I didn't. But once you start to, <laughs> get, once you start to get the rest of the group in the same mindset of what you're looking at and how to look at it differently, don't look at it through just the layman's eyes, but look at it with a different language. You start to find they support each other and push each other up. So I love that. And I resonate with that so much. I got to tell you, one of the things that I've been so curious about to understand more is the um, improvisational side. So I think that is Mm -hmm. such a fascinating approach. I think that it's incredibly engaging. Can you share, please share a little more with us about how that piece is a part of your programmatic approach to this and how do athletes and C-suite executives receive that? Because oftentimes we think improv, I'm not... I'm not an actor. I'm not this. I'm not that. And we are, <laughs> yeah. we are more than we give ourselves credit for. So how did, did you encounter that? And how did you manage through that? Because I think it's so unique to do it that way. Awesome. Well, thank you for the feedback. Yeah, we think that all of life is improvised. And at a base level, I say this to corporate groups all the time. How many times do you walk into a day thinking, I know exactly how it's going to go today? And how many times does that plan actually come to fruition? It's almost never. So our ability to change and adjust and be flexible in the moment is um, powerful. Improv is one technique. And I want to kind of share the deal behind under the hood, a whole philosophy that we have. It's called mile. And this is a way to layer some structure into any training curriculum, any concept that wants to be taught, any Thing that you need your people to learn. Uh, so we call it MILE. And it stands for mystery, incentive, laughter, and empowerment. And so these four principles are present in improvisation, right? And improvisation is that art of getting up and talking through made up conversations, thinking creatively, innovating on the spot. What's important in improv, and we certainly apply this in all of Demon's curriculum, is safety. You have to set rules of the game so that people know what their sandbox is and how it's defined, you know? So one of the rules of improv is yes and. It's the rule of agreement. Whatever you say, I will agree with you and I will add new information. And if I play by that rule and you play by that rule, now our conversation is moving forward together. Another rule that we use in our improv technique is the rule of I've got your back. Because I've just told you that whatever you say, I'm going to agree with, please then contribute powerful, uplifting information to the conversation. You know, have my back. If we're going to go somewhere together, let's go somewhere good. And then the third rule, and this is really, really important, is laugh with, not at. There's a huge power to laughter, but it has to be with. It has to be sensitive. It has to take care of the other person. Once you've been laughed at, you're done. 
And that's us at seven years old, that's us at 37 years old, you know, for our whole lifetime. So we set these really clear rules of the game and the sandbox, and that's what allows us to then use exercise and improv. That mild technique I mentioned, it's our litmus test. It's our chance to, you know, try out an exercise, have a laboratory, create something new specific to a client, and make sure that it's going to work. So mystery is that sense of leaning forward on the edge of your seat. It's, ooh, what's next? Ooh, am I into this? Mystery is extremely powerful. That's why there's a whole detective genre, right, in entertainment industry. Incentive is about intrinsic motivation. There's a lot of external motivators. You know, I was a Girl Scout. I got all the badges. I wanted my to <laughs> be decked. <laughs> Um, and that, that's part of who I am. But, you, you know, we really try to focus on what's your internal why. Why do you want to be a better speaker? Why do you want to have presence up in front of the room? You know, what is it about this next job or job interview that really is part of your long-term goal? Uh, laughter is that third principle. I talked about it a little. It's really simple. Laugh with, not at. There's been exercises that we've tried in the past, and we realized there was a risk that it could go off the rails and there was a potential for a laugh at. And so we didn't use that one because there's so much good out there that we don't need any risk of negative humor. And then empowerment is that fourth and final principle that we lay onto everything we do. And empowerment is twofold. First, it's that belief like you are enough. Where you are right now, what you have right now, all that you have done has prepared you for this moment and you are enough, you are empowered. And then secondarily, with that power, pay it forward and empower others and guide them. So in a sense, we think of ourselves as a guide, but we also want to create more guides. And that's uh, one of the ways that we scale and, and kind of sustain the program. Oh my God, I want to literally be in one of your workshops right now. Like it just, I'm <laughs> listening to, and I've seen you guys in action. I choose me too. <laughs> right, I'm like, how do I sign up? <laughs> But I have seen you and I know you, obviously. So I have my own personal sense of who you you and, and Steve are. And obviously Steve comes from an acting background and he's got that effusiveness that, that comes from being a comic actor. But, you know, when you talk about this idea of laughing with and not laughing at, it's really about building trust in the room. And we all, when we're, mm -hmm. especially when we're dealing with something like communication, where it can go off the rails really quickly. We're very self-conscious about how we come across. You know, we focus more yeah. on traditional public speaking and people have so many hangups about that. Aside from the, the way you guys are, your natural personalities, and I think we're very similar this way where we can put people at ease, what do you do to create that foundation of trust when you've got maybe a day or a half a day with a group of people, how do you build that so that you can, you can really do what you're trying to accomplish doing in the session and make sure that they are laughing with versus laughing at? How do you set that foundation? Well, it's a really tough thing, but I'm, you know, and I'm humble about it, but we try to be as authentic as possible when we enter the room. So from a preparation standpoint, that starts with structuring our presentations, but not fully scripting them out. You know, we're big believers in there are powerful moments, and sometimes it's the moments in between moments, right, that are going to move somebody or shake somebody up from their comfort zone. 
So <laughs> we try to get names. That's one of my kind of superpowers. I have a knack for remembering people's names, but it's not like I've just studied a roster, you know, a photo roster beforehand. I try to actually meet with and interact with the people in the 15 to 20 minutes leading up to the presentation beginning. I don't like that stay behind the curtain and then come out with a bang. I actually like to be in the crowd. I like to try to smile at people, talk to them, grab a cup of coffee with them. And for us, we have a temperature scale, right? Your temperature is kind of your presence. We call it eight, five, and three. It's the dimmer switch that you're on. <laughs> so you can come into a room as an eight, which is loud and opinionated and you heard my voice change just by talking about the yes. eight, right and physically it's it's big and that's powerful there's a moment for that on the flip side there's three i imagine your gestures are all over right now they're going i literally stood up tim you know it you can hear it right <laughs> you can't help it it's written oh my God, you guys are geeking out right now you're totally i'm so geeking out on this <laughs> I leaned into my i leaned into my microphone and laptop when you said that <laughs> Oh, well, you see, it's so when you number it, it gets real tangible. So to think like eight is this style of myself. And on the flip side, you have three and three's not negative. Three is actually so powerful. Three is when we're chill and patient and leaned back and listening first and observing and taking it all in. And you can hear just when I talk about three, it changes me. I sat back down <laughs> to talk about three. <laughs> But what I think right before going on is five. And five is right in the middle. I really consider it to be present. It's ready. We spent about 10 years at this amazing boarding school for elite athletes in Bradenton, Florida called IMG Academy. And we were one of the original founders of their leadership and character development and communication training programs. So I know from the sports world in tennis, you know, you don't know if you're going to hit a forehand or a backhand. So you return to ready position in the middle. That's five. And so that's kind of what I think. And sometimes I'll like hold an imaginary tennis racket and it puts me physically in the mindset of five. And yeah, I try to bring that temperature onto the stage when I go, especially when it's big audiences, especially when it's 500, 1,000, 1,500, because they don't want, and I think this is a good thing for the speaker industry in general, that age of the guru, I think is ending. I really do. I think that speaker who runs out on stage like, hey, how's everybody doing? Right. I can't hear you. How's everybody doing? And the audience is thinking in their head, not good. I am not good. I do not want that to be good. So it's not truly it's authentic. Not. Yeah. I love that. As you were talking, I was thinking about the improv piece of it and your philosophy behind it of you just don't know what's going to happen, right? So being able to think on your feet, I think is one of the best skills anybody can have is really critical because when you step out, whether you're on a big stage or you're working in a workshop with 20 people or five people, you just don't know what you're going to get and you can't anticipate what the you know what you're going to experience and the ability to be agile and flex to yeah. whatever is happening is so important and i love that because when you talk about authenticity which listen i i'll preach all day long about authenticity and i'd rather flawed <laughs> and be real and allow you to see that i'm not perfect i i can teach you things 
but I too make mistakes and I think it's important that we always share that. But that idea of trying to authentically match what's happening in the room and figure out what you need to bring is really what builds the trust. And again, I have insider knowledge because I know you guys and I've seen you in action. I know that you're so good at that. I have to tell you one thing though, which is cracking me up because I, a conduit here and that I know you and I know Tim really well. And as you tell the story about being what you try to do in your prep for a session where you try to get to know people and smile and say hi, it's how Tim and I met. It's that exact experience. Oh, awesome. I never really understood that because I don't come from the same world. You know, my background was not training. Mm -hmm. I was much more of a, you know, marketing kind of heads down person. I obviously was terrified of public speaking when I first started this. And, you know, that's my authentic truth that I had to overcome that. Yeah. But I met Tim because he was doing that exact thing. He, we were going to be in a team meeting. I was brand new to the company and he, ma he made it his business to talk to me. He didn't know who I was. He kind of, kind of figured out probably I was the new person. He wasn't doing a workshop mm -hmm. per se, but it was his style to come over, smile. He sat down next to me and started talking to me. And you know, this has a very funny ending to the story, which is that at the time I thought, oh my God, he's like the nicest guy in the world. I'm so excited. This is my new coworker. How lucky am I? Wow. <laughs> until about four years later that we were doing a workshop and I was like, wait a minute. I don't even know how authentic that was. I think he was totally working me before the session because that's what he does. And what I came <laughs> to realize was that that was a form of authenticity for him. That even though yeah. perhaps he manufactured some of it because that's his process to uh, get to know people and to make himself comfortable, but also to gather information. It's also very authentic. It is who he is. He wasn't really giving me anything that was fake. Although for a split second, I was like, I feel like I kind of got played by him. But then I realized <laughs> I just was part of his process and everything that followed from that was very real and authentic. And it really gave me a moment to take a step back because I was that person who walked into the room head down didn't want to look at anybody, was shy, didn't want to talk to anybody. And I didn't understand the value of smiling, putting people at ease, introducing myself ahead of time because of my own insecurities. And I love the fact that you're able to set a tone before you're even getting started. And the people in the room don't even realize that that's happening which is kind of amazing. So Tim, I've now told this story about you. I've totally changed the tone of this story because I used to make it like, he wasn't being real. He wasn't being authentic. I was going to say, that's the first time she said I was authentic. Yes, so I've, 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 revisited my, I've revisited my philosophy on this story. <laughs> Usually that you know. it. He was faking it all the way and I, it's not who I thought he was. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. Oh, Tim, yeah, you go. I want to hear your perspective on the story for sure. Oh, oh I love that you asked that. <laughs> oh, no one has ever asked me that. Thank you. So here's the thing for me. Yes, there is some truth. Everything that Tammy said is very true. It's a part of my script. It's a part of my process. And my process came from my own insecurities and how I presented myself. 
So I was that, that typical same person too. And a lot of people don't know my backstory. I did not like speaking in public, leading a team, being at the front and center stage in any way, shape or form. I still to this day am the guy in the corner with a glass of wine that everybody knows watches the rest of the room. But what really changed things for me was I learned that I did have control over something that I thought was predetermined for me. I'm just that person who's that way. And once I learned that, it became so rote in how I treat every relationship. Anybody I meet for the first time, I want to be able to provide the most open, engaging, friendly experience. And that's a very authentic place to come from. Those are very genuine uh, experiences and frame framework that I want people to say, hey, when they walk away from me and they reflect on our conversation, I want them to use those words to describe me. And, and you know, keeping it in context of a business relationship, it was really important to me. I knew exactly who she was because I knew yeah. that she was the only unfamiliar face based off the folks that were going to be there. I'm like, this is yeah. her. So I took that chance. My, the intention or the incentive to me, if I look at the mile approach that you were talking about, my incentive was this is somebody that I'm going to be working with. And whether the rest of my other working relationships were good or bad or not, I wanted this one to be really solid. And the only way I'm going to understand how I'm going to feel about that is to get myself into a position where she sees me for who I am, but is also comfortable in opening up to me. And I know in my mind that I have a program that's running right now. And it's a line of code that is going code after code after code. Uh, so it's rhythmic. Mm -hmm. But the intentionality behind it was, I really want to know how I'm going to work with this person. Am I going to like them? Are they going to like me? Are they going to receive? Oh, you're talking well? about, yes. I mean, I have to jump in because Please, you're talking in. about oh, just yeah. the human condition. Yeah. And the fact is, we just want to be liked. Yeah. We just want to be liked. We want to just feel safe. I want you to have, at the end of the day, you could say after a few times of meeting me or interacting with me that, oh, I don't like this. I do like this. But especially in business, and I, and I think it's really important to say this professionally and not personally, we own and control that. And that is part of what we do. And that's part of what brings the, that we bring as value as an individual is how we manage those relationships. Personally, I may do some of the same, but certainly not to the same degree. I admittedly, if it's just a personal relationship, will dip my tone. And Tammy has seen me do this so many times. I will come across the same way that she experienced me the first time but I'm going to cut that real quick if I'm not having the experience I want to, because personally, I don't need it. But there's need behind that intentionality. And I just want to know, are you going to receive me as well as I receive you? How did I do, by the way, Tim? How did I, did I fare okay that day? Uh, look at where <laughs> we never, we're at today. We never talk about that part of it. Oh, let's talk about, talk about that. my experience. I think the best way I can validate that, and I love that, is that at one point, Tammy won't share this, but I will going through whatever personal trauma someone has in their life. And we've all had it. It was a very weird stage for me in my life. And the signal, which she will know loud and true, is <laughs> I, I exactly. sent her an email. That's kind of staring. I was emoting <laughs> via email. And I said, your friend, Tim. 
<laughs> I mean, who signs off that way? And it was my oh, way. Tim, my that's beautiful. I love that. Can I just say, so Thank you. <laughs> we as a company, <laughs> we're about heart. And like, I personally have been accused of being kind of Pollyannic in the past, like, you know, oh, rose-colored glasses. But I would not want it any other way. And, you know, I said earlier that we just want to be liked. I'd love to like deepen that a little bit because I think it's that we want to be cared about. We want to be cared for. And so I think in today's day and age, right? And this is a podcast, which is exciting because it has the chance to get the word out to lots of people. There's so much noise. There's so much sound. There's so much buzz. And as people think about the meaning of being an influencer, right? Which now is on scale, like on views, views, click, click. <laughs> I'm all about kind of bringing it back down to that one-to-one level because whether it was truly authentic or inauthentic, you guys met and you remember the day that you met and that's powerful. So something clearly did connect that way. And there was something about Tim, the way that you came over to Tammy and it was early in her time at that company, right? And she could feel care from you. And so I, I want to kind of, in my personal philosophy, and I take this from my business partner, Steve, it's not about running for most popular anymore. It's about running for most respected. And how do we get that respect? It's through our intentional actions. And if those actions lift other people up, and that is a long game, not a short game. You touch on something I want to dip into about that, about wanting to be liked. I think that that is such a huge piece of what we teach at the fundamental level. I know that when I met Tammy, and I do this with every with a lot of people, so it, she's she's one of those folks, obviously. But part of it was, I how would I want to be treated if I were coming into a company new? When we were introduced to each other, I was like the second person that was a part of this team, and this team went from let's say two or three or four people, all of a sudden we're up to like eight, nine, 10, 12 at the drop of a hat. And I just do care about people that I'm going to be working with in the sense of how would I want to be on the receiving end if I were the one coming in? So that's part of it. But yeah. the question I want to ask you is this, you brought up likability and I'm so down <laughs> with that concept But I want to throw a little bit of a spin on this from your experience, uh, because I think that what we see now in the folks we're training, whether it's athletes, C-suites, trying to broaden our reach, and I think we all can agree everybody needs this kind of training, period, end of story, Mm -hmm. generational differences. Those millennials Mm -hmm. that are out there, and I don't say those millennials with any contempt, I'm just identifying them, the likability doesn't seem to be the same the same approach for them. And so I'm with you where I don't understand the connection of not wanting to be likable. I don't need everybody to like me, but I want to be a likable person. I want to be someone that's easy to interact with, have a genuine experience. There's a millennial shift here where I feel like that likability factor isn't so important. And I'm wondering if, you know, in your guys' work, when you look at what you're doing, how do you see the different generations showing up, especially like, these new athletes that are just being drafted and coming out, like, are you seeing a different way to care about these elements? Well, it's so interesting. This is a, this is a hot topic (laughs) we have just (laughs) gotten into. So let me first acknowledge that. Agreed. There are a lot of people out there, present company, I would say excluded, 
but there are a lot of people in our industry who are making a lot of money by explaining this is how we are different. They are this and we are that, or we are this and they are that. And yes, there are differences. What I try to marinate on is where are we the same? And so I will say, I think that these next generations coming up get the concept of being real. They get the concept of authenticity. You know, there's still some show and showmanship because that's our society that we're in, how we compare ourselves to this image and how we compare ourselves to that person. And it's right in our hand, in our face. And we can talk later about the dopamine and oxytocin and serotonin and endorphins that are released from a digital device that are skewing our perception of what good is. But when it comes to the sense of not being liked, I think it's, again, it's, it's not about popular, it's about respected. Like, younger people are understanding what core values are. And they are starting to say, no, this is my strength, this is my perspective, this is my vision. And I think it's created some fear in other generations who maybe haven't actually been as empowered, right? Who, who haven't had anybody say to them, no, you can make decisions and you can push back uh, with respect within the hierarchy. So uh, one of the things that we talk about a lot is millennial, Gen X, baby boomer, you know, different generations. Can we get to a place where this is universal? Like what's the big Venn diagram? Let's do lots of Venns. <laughs> what's that center, center point? And so to me, I just go back to, People want to work in an environment where they are seen for their strengths. They hear from the higher ups, like, I value those strengths. They hear verbal validation, validate, validate, validate. And you know what? All generations respond to that. Tell me where I'm doing well. I like that. It feels good. And then if you've earned that trust, then respectfully say, and this is what I need you to work on. And one of the reasons why Game On has been successful is we take those things that people need to work on and we try to quantify it. We quantify it into numbers like 853. Uh, in conflict situations, we have technique called listen, talk, fix, that anybody could lay into a conversation. Listen is, let's just take a moment to unpack this. And when you listen, you have to be empathetic. And, you know, we talk about letting the person speak all the way to the end of their thoughts before you jump back in and listening. Talk is it's a dual thing or maybe a trio thing, right? Let's talk it out and let's do that in a respectful sandbox where, you know, I might have this perspective, but you have to hear my perspective. And then fix is never ending the conversation before there's a solution or at least a next step. Even if the next step is, let's just take a moment and pause and breathe and start talking again tomorrow. But what is the next step? Because I think that that's one of the rabbit trails is if you don't have and that's, this is something I'm passionate about. It's the difference between a good to know, which is concept. Concepts are great to know. I like to learn, right? Um, that's kind of my new adult Girl Scout badge is, ooh, I want to learn a, bit, a little bit about physics today. Or, you know, or I want to learn to make the perfect scrambled egg. Or I want to learn a business concept. But if I don't have a good to do, like an action plan, an actual thing that I can do more than just think about it, then that concept will fade away. So you got to balance the good to knows with the good to do. So that was a very obtuse and long-winded answer about how generations are different. But if we can all work to get what is universal, what is true for all of us, that's, I think, the win. That, what you just said, I think is so important because 
I remember when I first started working in, well, when Tim and I first started working together in the training and consulting space, our focus, my focus was very heavily on diversity and inclusion. And I did a lot of work with women's leadership, which is how we met. But the idea was, this was born out of decades and decades of people feeling overlooked and this idea that we have to we have to celebrate the difference and which is great and we have to recognize the importance of representation and that it is important that we have diverse thinking and we have uh, different people at the table and what has happened in some ways and I, I obviously I truly support the idea of creating diverse environments and being inclusive and all of that. But I think what you touched upon is really important and the reverberation is beginning with this, which is that we've gone to a point where we've created these factions and given the state of affairs of our country right now, where we are so polarized in, in, in ways, I, I think it's more important than ever to find what our commonalities are. With all of that, you know, I've got a I've got a kid who's going off to college. So I'm I've got a Gen Z living in my house who's about to <laughs> the world. And it's fascinating to watch him and to see how he perceives things. And this idea of diversity is so foreign to him. Um, and certainly, you know, when we've worked with with younger millennials we began to see that they have a very different concept of diversity and the conversation is very different for them and they're accustomed to having lots of different ideas and points of view and they're much more inclusive by nature for the most part. But now there's this whole other thing happening which is a sheer rejection of the diversity conversation because it seems irrelevant to them. Like, why are we even talking about this? Because we should just accept everybody. And I'm so fascinated to see what the impact is going to be in the next five years when they start entering the workforce, or even now, I mean, there are some Gen Zs that are getting into the workforce and their whole, you know, just relentless, approach to we believe in seeing lots of point of views because they've lived in a global world from childhood yeah. they have technology well, their world is their world is huge huge so i love what you're talking about and i think it's so important and quite frankly healthy to begin to flip this around a little bit and say what makes us similar and your, your conversation about authenticity, and there's a question coming in this, by the way, but your conversation okay. <laughs> around authenticity, I think, is really important here. How do you bring that into the equation to try to bridge that gap, right? Because if, if we are being our authentic selves, right? Like, I remember 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the conversation was, how can I bring my whole self to work? How can I begin to be my authentic self and be accepted, right? I could be a mom and a professional and a soccer player and a piano player 
and I knit, right? And all of those things are part of me and I can bring, I, I'm none of those things except for a mom. <laughs> By the way, I don't do any of those things. I was like, you knit, Tammy? No, wow. I was oh, too. I really do nothing but work and have kids. But how can I bring all of those things to the table and be accepted and embraced with all of that? I just wonder for you guys, because I know authenticity is such an important part of what you're doing. Like, how do you weave that into what you're doing to really bridge the gaps between people. We really try to give individuals the inner strength and confidence and belief that they are enough. That all that is needed for them uh, to succeed is already present within them and they have to just start by recognizing it. And so that's a very high level concept, but I think people are starving for it because we're living in this world of comparison. And yeah, it's interesting. So we've expanded in the past six years to really enter the diversity and inclusion space. And it's kind of a polarizing topic from an industry perspective because there are a lot of people who are fact-based, statistic-based, case study-based right? This is the information. This is how it's going on. There is a place for that. That's important. It's relevant and it's eye-opening. However, I feel like if we're doing equal opportunity training or workplace rights or stability training and we stop at like, this is a problem. It is wrong. It is unlawful. We start there, but don't stop there. What are the solutions? What are the next steps? You know, one technique we use a lot is called last letter. How can you let the other person speak all the way to the end of their thought so that you understand what the last letter of their last word is? And if you just take a, any conversation and you play last letter with that, people are going to slow down. They're going to listen more. They're going to have more oxygen. They're going to, you also, you can't play last letter. And while the other person is speaking, give them horrible facial expressions and shake your head no at them, right? <laughs> we talk about signals. You know, yes. so again, it's about solutions and those solutions are really simple. They're simple, but they're still complex in terms of the outcome. It's one thing, actually, another space that we've entered into heavily is workplace well-being. And I think that this part of the training and development industry has cracked the code because they know that well-being is an action-oriented <laughs> learning process, Right. You don't just go to a meditation session and talk about, well, we're going to meditate. And when you meditate, you right. have this outcome. Like you actually just do the meditation. Right, right. No concept. And then the outcomes happen. So yeah, it's that balance of good to know, good to do. And for all of us finding back uh, that universal core that we want to be cared for. We want to know that when we show up to work, we get to bring our best selves. We get to bring our true selves. And that will be a accepted so long as it's done with respect so long as it's appropriate in a professional environment you know i work with a few different executive groups and there's a game we play called coins coins are things that you love they're your values we talk a lot about things outside of work and how that can light you up and then what you can bring back into work some of my coins are my son um, i also love motown like i like to listen to motown in the morning it gets me pumped up yeah, I also like faith and belief is a really important coin of mine. And it's something that I'm discovering newly every day, right? So these are a couple of my core things. And we'll talk about this with executives. And then they start to hear from one another what they authentically care about. And you can see it on their face. 
And then I also get to a point in the conversation where somebody's like, I love bourbon. And I'm like, that is great. Good for you. Now let's <laughs> good. Good. And and then just temper that with when is that useful in a professional environment? And also, is that your only thing that you're leading with? What else do you have? What else can you bring to the table? You know, with some of my former uh, youth athletes, like they love a nap. Now, I'm a mom of two kids under the age of four, so I love a nap too. <laughs> but if they're going from, you know, a college situation into a job interview slash draft situation and the GM says, well, what do you love to do when you're not on the field? And they say nap, what else do you have? Right. What else uh, lights you up and brings you value? Can you talk about being the oldest of five children? Can you talk about uh, fishing with your grandfather? So what are those kind of appropriate topics, but still authentic and valuable and still uplifting uh, from outside of work that you can bring into work? Mm, I love that. I love that. I have to mention two things that really have been playing in my head while you were talking. One goes back to the story of when Tim and I first met that has been a real sort of hallmark, I think, of our relationship working together and why we've had a long standing relationship as, as you know, co-workers and founders and now co-hosts of our podcast. I remember I walked into a training company, never having worked in a training company before. I'd spent my career working in, for the most part, book and magazine publishing on, on a business, on the business side of things. So sure, I'd, you know, gotten up and presented in front of clients and uh, had to present in front of my peers, never loved it. But now all of a sudden, I'm in a room full of professional coaches and trainers, which was incredibly intimidating to me, because I wasn't coming in as a coach or a trainer, I was coming in as a business person, I was bringing I was bringing structure and process to a group of people who inherently were not structured or process oriented. And for whatever ridiculous reason, I decided that I was going to jump right into the fray. And I'm sure for me at the time, it was a way to build some confidence and try to establish some level setting with them. Like I want to show you, I can facilitate too. I can do whatever. And and I know Tim knows the story very well because I've shared it before. I got up in front of this group of people. And you know, upon reflection, I'm thinking, maybe not the smartest move because I should have gotten to know the room before I did it. But I got up anyway and I did it and I was young and I was foolish. But I got up and I started uh, trying to facilitate a brainstorming session. And the thing that stuck with me that day and has stuck with me literally every day since then is every time I turned around, Tim was smiling at me. And I felt like he's got my back. I don't know this oh, guy. I don't yeah. know this guy, but he's got my back. And if his intention was exactly what he said, you know, I want, or what you said, Blair, I want to be liked. I want to establish some level of trust. I, you know, from his vantage point, he knew I was coming in to run a portion of the business and, you know, she's going to be an important, influential person in terms of my ability to be successful in my role. Um, so I probably want to get on her good side. And that's authentic, you know, even if it is capitalizing on a situation, but he did it so effectively. He did it really effectively because every time I turned around, I felt like, oh, this is a good guy. Like he, with a room full of people who weren't necessarily making me feel 
very comfortable. He was the standout in the room that did make me feel comfortable. So I think that mm-hmm. I that idea of of likability and and establishing trust in what for him was a very authentic way. But the other thing it makes me think about, and you may be familiar with this as well, it's something that we use a lot, is Amy Cuddy's idea of warmth and competence. And if you're not familiar with it, and for the people listening who may not be familiar with it, she did a study, I guess it was probably about 10 years ago now. And what they did is she kind of created this grid and it was measuring people's desire as well as how they showed up from a warmth and a competence standpoint. And just to boil it down very simply, there's this idea that you know, on, on this four quadrant scale, if you will, we are either warm or cold and competent or incompetent. And we perceive people this way. Like we immediately make assumptions. So you and I meet for the very first time and, you know, within 15 seconds, we're forming an impression of whether do I like this person? Do I think this person has any credibility? And the reality is, is that competence can be demonstrated in lots of different ways. Using my example before, I knit, I play music, I can cook well, I'm also a brain surgeon, and I've got great kids. So therefore, I seem like I've got competence. And you can look at my CV, or you can research me or Google me on the web, and you're going to find all these things that I'm competent with. But when it comes to likability, it's pretty binary. I decide really quickly, do I like you? Do I not like you? And it's really hard to take somebody from taking the experience that I had with Tim, if I had a completely different experience with him or I responded to him in a different way, he might've decided, wow, I gave it a shot. She wasn't receptive. I don't really like her very much. How do I get over to the other side? How do I come back from that to help him see that, wait a minute, no, 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 you really should like me. I was having a bad day. Like it was a new experience for me. And I think it's really important. We have the desire. We all want to be in the quadrant of the most competent and the most likable, the warmest, but we don't always show up that way. And I, I just think it's- Oh, well, I've got thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I've got thoughts. I mean, I tried to interrupt you before because I want to point out something really magical that you talked about, which is just the fact that Tim was smiling at you. Yes. That alone, that action of smiling is so powerful. And yeah. it communicates so much way before there are words. So first, I have to share with you guys uh, kind of a best practice that I have been undertaking. And it's really fun. And oh, I, I think that. you might want to try it. And maybe potentially some of the listeners would want to try this. So I call it an attack smile. And so, or smile attack, I'm looking on branding. Um, but uh, the idea is that wherever I go, if I'm at, stopped in my car at a stoplight, I turn to the person next to me and I just smile at them. And I see if I can get them to smile back. And I love to do this at airports with unsuspecting people where I will just have my oh, roller bag. so much. I'll be in Charlotte or Atlanta or Dallas or wherever. And, you know, people kind of catch your eye for a second. And if you smile at them, it is amazing. You get one of two reactions. Either they smile back, and actually that happens more often than you would think, or they quickly avert their eyes and shuffle away. And in which case, <laughs> you know, maybe I've kind of intrigued them. There's a mystery dynamic in play. Why was that lady smiling at me? But 
the output of my energy to just smile at someone is small. The input of what I receive back from their signals is surprising and awesome and really uplifting. And so, yeah, that is a, a technique because what you talked about, Tammy, Tim's smile at you changed everything for you in that room. Everything. It was that ally suddenly. Yep. The burst of confidence. So, yeah, I'd love to inspire a generation of smile. Oh, this is why I'm accused of being polyannic, but it is real. It's no, real. it's real. It's it is it is really real. When we're not, we we have spent a lot of time lately being angry and not smiling at each other. I think if we could spend a little bit more time being nice and kind and smiling. I mean, it's it does sound Pollyanna-ish, but it's it, you're very right. I, I could not agree with you more. I could not agree more. The other thing is uh, I love to, wherever there's a doorway that I pass through, but particularly like the door to my house as I exit, the door to my car as I get in. And again, when I get to my office, exiting that door of my car, those are moments where I can re-decide like it's on. I'm in my day. Because there is like a public persona, right? And when we're surrounded by others, and then there's a private persona. My favorite place in the world is my couch with my husband and my two boys and our one cat in my pajamas. Like that's, that's my private, oh, you know, yeah. but I also, it's, it's about making the decision. Like it's on right now. And my signals that I give off impact the people around me. So I'm responsible for that. I can control that. I can control if I choose to walk through the door with a positive attitude or if I choose to like mope because I'm tired and I didn't get my coffee yet. And I also think how you say hello, like this, this one action can transform a culture. If somebody comes in and says hello with one tone of voice and the other people respond, hello, it's done. You're not playing on the same field. So we like to kind of throw out whatever the first person brings, match that or potentially level it up, right? And just from the very first hello, 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 now we're playing in the same game. So those sorts of small things really add up. Agreed, agreed. That's really, yeah. I mean, it, it certainly speaks to what we talk about and what our focus is, which is the little subtle things just in your voice and how inflection can change it or you know, we'll, we'll do a lot of coaching around smiling when you're talking, sometimes just for the, for the purpose of getting people to enunciate better or to get their voice louder. But there's other benefits of that, obviously, is that you're smiling. I mean, if you're talking about a heavy topic, a smile may be a little bit out of place, but it certainly helps. It certainly helps to change the experience of someone who's looking at you. It's a very important part of your of your body language. Um, I do have a question for you that's a little bit a shift in topic, which is I know you did a TEDx talk and I know you have some interesting insights from that. We are always fascinated to hear people's successes and maybe some of the things they learn from not the most successful experiences. Um, and I know for you, it's not, I know you might consider it to be not a successful experience, but you also had some really great outcomes from it and some great learnings from it. So I would love to hear you share that. I think there's some really important lessons for us to learn from it. Awesome. Uh, thank you for bringing it up. <laughs> I would not have told you thank you for bringing it up in the immediate week following that TEDx talk. But you know, 
what do they say in theater and performance? Tragedy plus time equals comedy. And <laughs> I have to laugh about that because it's so not tragic. My it's so gosh. not tragic. So yeah. I, gosh, I guess it was about five or six years ago now. And I was at a point in my early 30s where I was like, this is my time. I'm going to rise to the top. And the uh, moment happened where I was invited to do uh, a TEDx talk. And this was pretty early before TED was, you know, somewhat oversaturated. So I was like, I'm getting into the zeitgeist. Like I'm part of it. And <laughs> just think about that sort of feeling about yourself and the ego that is in play that I can completely acknowledge vulnerably, you know, not proud of that, but it was there. It was present. So I flew out to Los Angeles. It was going to be at Loyola Marymount and it was for educators. And I was so excited to share game dynamics with them. Well, what happened is that I blew it up so much in my mind that I got the flu. I got the flu. Oh, and, wow. you know, the talks aren't long. They're, they're 12 minutes to 18 minutes, right? And right before, so I couldn't back out. I was the opening speaker for the whole conference. I felt well enough. I was like at the fourth day of the flu. I had gotten to LA a little early. Um, so I was like, okay, I can do this. And in my mind, I had this 50-50 coin toss decision. Do you tell the audience like you're sick and kind of get their empathy? Like, hey guys, I'm just getting over the flu. Want to be real about that? That was one decision. And that was not the decision that I made. <laughs> the decision that I made was, no, Blair, you only have to be perfect for 18 minutes. You can do this. And so <laughs> I went out and I did the talk and it went overall very well, except that at a certain point in it, I started to cough and I coughed and coughed and coughed and my voice like completely went out, which as you know, as a speaker is like a worst nightmare. That's oh. your tool. That's your machine. So, Just the kiss of death. Oh, here I am, you know, on the red circle carpet. Like my hair is done, my nails are done. I've practiced this. This is 12 years of career leading up to this moment. And I, I lose my voice in the middle of it. So I got it back. <laughs> and, um, and everything from hindsight perspective actually went fine. And it's something that I am pretty proud of. But the biggest lesson I learned is why was I trying to hide something that's so real and human? Why did I not think it was okay to just be like, guys, I'm sick. I'm so sorry. I'm so happy to be here. Bear with me. I have a cough drop in my mouth right now. You know, why couldn't I just, yeah. And so uh, on this recorded camera scale, I learned that lesson. And, uh, and it actually has made things so much easier for me. You know, looking back, that actually is not even that much of a highlight over all of the presentations I've given, it's, it's still amazing and wonderful. I've been in much more difficult, much rarer air rooms since then. I'm so grateful for that lesson because I now know to start from where you are and that's enough. You have enough. I, I tell people this uh, all the time because they, uh, I think they often forget when you're the one who's getting up there in front of everybody and it's your time it seems as though sometimes they feel uh, as a speaker on the main stage or whatever situation, they've got to put on this magical suit and become somebody else. 
And there just is no magical suit. You are who you are. And I like to bring a little levity to it and share with them that, in fact, I'm willing to bet right now, those folks are so glad you're the one up there and it's not them. They want you to do well. You start off with everything on your side. No one shows up hoping you crash and burn and do awful. I mean, most people don't. Not going to say in absolutes, but there are a few out there. (laughs) But I, I think that that vulnerability of saying, guys, gosh, I have a cold and going to do this with cough yeah. drops and make it the best I can. And it gets, it gets more credibility, I think, for us as individuals because it humanizes us and something that we feel is, is something that's inhuman that's reserved for a small section of people. So I love that. I love that you shared yeah. that story. Yeah, I mean, to your point earlier, Blair, I think there was a point in time not that long ago where there would be an expectation that you'd show up and you'd just be perfect, right? You've got you've to get on that stage and kill it and everything has to be right. And if you showed up and said, you know, I'm not feeling well and I'm, gonna, I'm here, I'm doing it, I am living it, I am, I am with you and I'm giving you everything I have that that would have been completely unacceptable. Whereas now, like you're human, I too, you know, everything isn't perfect for me, and but I'm still going to be here and I'm still going to do this. And I think it it goes a long way, but we were definitely, and especially as a woman, right? You know, you're, you've got this idea built oh, yeah. that you have to be a certain way and it's not okay to be anything less than perfect, which we all know is nonsense because there is no such thing as perfection, for sure. Constant improvement, no perfection. I love that. Constant improvement, no perfection. You know, and I, there's actually like a Leonard Cohen quote that goes, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Oh, I and love that. um, that's, that's one of the things I like to think about. So yeah, TED Talk really kind of formalized that for me uh, in a very public setting, but I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the lesson. And it certainly makes things easier when your trade is, getting up in front of large groups of people to know that where you're starting from is just fine and don't start from anywhere else. Absolutely. I mean, we could go on and on. Maybe we'll have to just schedule another <laughs> one here because I want to I want to go deeper into the data at some point. But I know we're wrapping up at the end of our time. And again, we always like to ask our esteemed guests a very, very important question. And we'd like to know in these days of technology, we, I'm dating myself, used to have books on, on the nightstand. We would actually pull out and read and not flip through on a Kindle or anything else. So in that vein, what really is grabbing your interest these days from a podcast perspective? Or are you reading thing in particular that you could share with others to inspire them or give them fodder to reach out and continue on their own journey. What are you what are you paying attention to these days? So I will give you what is on my nightstand. Um, <laughs> and then I'll give you the bigger answer to that question. So what is on my nightstand right now is The Power of Moments by Chip and Dan Heath, which is great. It talks about how it's really like quick moments within a long span that make an impact that people remember. So I think that that's a great concept. I picked that up from a Hilton conference that I was speaking at out in San Diego not too long ago. And I know that's big in Hilton culture and they're cooking some good stuff over there. So I would recommend that. But more than that, and this is something I think everybody should do, and I am struggling with it, but I'm trying. I'm actually trying to just be silent and have quiet time with my thoughts. 
not in a formal meditation, but just kind of unplugging, shutting off uh, all of the signals, uh, you know, that are firing that dopamine and oxytocin <laughs> and actually just having a, a little bit of less blue light and a little bit more quiet. So I did start keeping a journal uh, by my bed and I most of the time write in it first thing in the morning. Uh, like what is the first thought? that I wake up with. Uh, and then I try to marinate and, and think about that for my day. Oh my gosh, that's fantastic. Blair, thank you for saying that because we, I think this is the best answer to this question we've had on all of our podcasts because <laughs> we live in a world now where consumption is everything. And it's, yeah. I feel like you're evaluated on who you know, what you're listening to, what you're watching. You know, have you seen every new amazing series on Netflix? Like, are you spending every moment of every day consuming pop culture or, you know, news or information? I am so appreciative that you said, nope, turn it off. Just turn it off. Yeah. It's okay. And it goes back to your theory that you are enough. It's okay to not be on trend and know every single thing and not go to every dinner party and be like, oh my God, yes, I did see that episode. To just be like, no, I'm actually quiet. I'm just sitting and being one with <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you got you. it. A really good technique too, when somebody says, did you hear about this? And you say, no, I like to follow up with, but please tell me about it. Because then at least I haven't shut down the conversation. They still get to talk about what they love. So. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, Blair, thank you so much. This has been the most awesome podcast. We have loved talking to you. I know Tim has had a great time. I've had a great time. It's just a, on a personal level, it's always great to catch up with you. But B, I really appreciate all that you shared. And I think what you guys are doing is amazing. And I love your approach to really trying to create a better place for us all, like really getting people to be comfortable and to, to just be good with who they are and show up differently. I just think it's awesome and really, really grateful for you coming and, and joining us and talking with us today. Thank you so much. I'm so Enjoy. grateful for you both. Yeah, thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tammy. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. So much appreciation.